You're listening to the Leadership Jam Session Podcast, the place where you'll get to hear leaders at all levels of management share their practical solutions to the management challenge you face every day. So let's give it a jam. I'm your host, Rob Fonte. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. Today's guest is Chris Valley, who is the Vice President with DNV, GL's Program Design and Implementation Business Area, and he's been with them for the past 10 years. In this role, he is responsible for the successful delivery of energy efficiency, demand response, and renewable energy implementation programs across DNVGL's national portfolio. However, prior to joining DNVGL, Chris spent 25 years as an Air Force officer and pilot with command experience at the squadron, division, and wing level. In 2010, Colonel Valley completed his final tour in the U.S. Air Force as the Vice Wing Commander of Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. Colonel, it's an honor to have you in with me today. Welcome. Rob, thank you very much. It's a great opportunity for me to be here and a pleasure to speak to you. Are you ready to jam? I'm ready. Bring it on. All right. So going back to your final command as the Vice Wing Commander of Keesler Air Force Base, how many people were under your command? Yeah, great question. You know, an Air Force base comprises a a large group of people doing a myriad of different uh, roles. You can think of it a lot of ways as a small city. Um, At Keesler Air Force Base, which was a technical training uh, wing, we had 11,000 military and civilian personnel under that wing, and we ran through 26,000 students through the 34 different technical training programs annually. Wow, that's a lot of people. And I want to come back to that, but what I'm curious is, when you transitioned into the private sector, did you struggle leading in the private sector when you took over your first team? There's a huge misperception about military leadership uh, and its transition into the civilian workforce. I can tell you uh, that I did not have any challenges transitioning into a civilian role because I've always treated people and my leadership responsibilities exactly the same way. So working with my first team in the civilian sector, which was a group of 15 people focused on delivering energy efficiency implementation programs for a utility in Northern Pennsylvania, I treated that team the same skills and the same expectations that I had any day of the week with the 25 years that I had with military leadership opportunity. And the results were exactly the same. Yeah, you're right. You know, I, I think there there is a misperception out there. And in my experience, I've, I've heard it time and time again where, you know, people think that leading in the military is very different than leading in the private sector. In the military, it's a very top-down approach. But as you're confirming, there's a lot more similarities than people realize. And perhaps maybe you can share some of your guiding principles on how you led teams in both the private and public sector. This is uh, pretty simple for me uh, because you know, in my whole Air Force career, uh, we operated under a set of core values in the United States Air Force. And those core values really became the guiding principles that I used in the military and still to this day use. And they're pretty simple. And they are integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. And if you break those out and you tear those apart and, and look at each of them, I mean, they become the the foundations that every leader needs to operate within and and build that trust. I mean, integrity speaks for itself. You know, you have to have a team that that trusts you, that that trusts that you're taking them in the right direction, and trust that you have their back. That's going to open up 
great opportunities for them to bring you innovation and to bring you ideas, even if those ideas don't always work. They have faith in you that a bad idea isn't necessarily the end of a good career. Service before self, this is where people want to know how committed you are to the, to the objectives and to the organization. And by really showing that servant leadership and showing that you care about the people that work for you and you care about the mission that you're doing, it really embodies a loyalty and a commitment uh, to, the, to the team and to the principals. You know? and, th- and that brings you to the last one, which is excellence in all we do. Now there's a commercial that's out there. I uh, can't even tell you what it's about, but what I can tell you is you know, that, that you know, it's just okay. But when I think about your team, really, you need them to know that just okay isn't good enough. You want that commitment to excellence, that ability to stretch you know, just a little bit farther than you think you can, and, and give your client or, or your, your organization the best product that, that you have to deliver. Integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. That's great. And as I hear you talking through it, there is that mindset out there that, well, in the military, it's, it's just a very top-down approach. I say you do. And yet the soft skills is, is present in terms of the approach, at least in your approach, on the people that you led in the military. Is that accurate? Uh, it is accurate, yeah. You know, and, and I say you do works well when bullets are flying. Uh, but when you want somebody to buy into a long-term vision and really put the commitment over a period of time, you, you've got to sell that vision back to them. That, that, that's not a, a tactical engagement of go do. So going back to your, your current role that you're in as a vice president, uh, the position you're in is, and the organization you work for, the industry is very different than the experience of the positions you had when you were in the Air Force, and yet you were hired into this role without really any of that technical experience. Is that accurate? Uh, it's very accurate. Uh, and I think what it speaks to uh, is something that I believe, which is that you know, leadership is really industry agnostic, right? My last couple of jobs in the Air Force, after 23 years of being a pilot and, and leading within the flying community and leading within those kind of operational roles, um, I, you know, I transitioned into a more of a logistics position when I was at uh, U.S. Transportation Command prior to Keesler Air Force Base, and and then into a technical training field at Keesler Air Force Base. Neither of which did I have real deep experience uh, in, but yet I, you know, I was able to work with the team that I was given, create a vision of a better future, you know, sell that vision to the broader organization, work within a clear process of how we're going to get to obtain that vision, build the right team, which is very important. Oftentimes you're given a team in the military. Uh, that team comes with a myriad of different skill sets. Uh, the, the skills you need to get to your vision may, may be outside of that. So you've got to go find the right resources or hire new resources in the civilian sector. Uh, sometimes that means you have to, you know, uh, move resources that are on your, on your team, uh, and, you know, and hopefully you can find another place in the organization for them. Once you have that right team in place, 
then it becomes you know, about following that process and building on accountability structure so that everyone's working together, you know, with, you know, alignment across all of the different activities integrated together to bring that synergistic effect that gets you to that future vision of a better place to be. You know, you said something uh, that reminded me of something that I talk about a lot in my workshops, particularly with new leaders, that all it takes is one bad employee to make the job of leading people miserable, just one. But when you have the right team in place and you have everything moving in the right direction, it can be the best job that you can have. Very rewarding. The question I have is, in a public sector, if somebody's not performing, you can get rid of them. That seems to be more of a challenge in the military, correct? Yes and no, right? Uh, There are times when you're given people and resources that uh, you're given because someone else wants them there and they may or may not have the right skill set. So now as the new leader, um, your job is to train them with the right skill sets that they need. And certainly both the military and in, and in the civilian sector, there's training opportunities uh, for particular skills, especially in leadership skills, or uh, augment them. And a lot of times you'll find that people are weak in certain areas, and then you can find somebody else that's strong where they're weak and create teaming and partnerships that 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 bring together the full uh the the, the full capability that you need um it's always easy to say just you know get fire somebody or move somebody at that but uh you know it was was donald rumsfeld that said uh you know you go to war with the army you have not the army you want and i think you know day to day uh in in military or civilian you know you're focused on your objective with the team you have not always the team you want to that strengths and weaknesses together to build the whole synergistic team. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of parallels between the public and private sector. I think there's more than most people realize. And, and in a lot of ways for my veteran you know, friends who are transitioning from the military, I wish, I wish those walls would come down even further because the, the value of military leadership, from my perspective, you know, the integrity, the service, and the excellence that we spoke to before are, uh, you know, very beneficial. You know, in my experience over over several years of interviewing many, many people and being on different interview teams, I have come across more times than not the unfortunate scenario where hiring managers label leaders that they're interviewing who come from military backgrounds, uh, they they label them as very top-down approach, a very authoritarian approach, unfairly. I might add. And in my experiences, that tends not to be the case. I mean, you're always going to have the exception to the rule. But in my experiences, when I've interviewed leaders who come from the military, I find that they are very well balanced between that transactional and more of that transform uh, transformational skill set or the, the softer skills, if you will. Absolutely. And remember, you know, today's military is an all-volunteer military. So it, uh, if you want to keep the good people around, you're, you're going to have to treat them, uh, motivate them, and reward them in many of the same ways that you would whether they were military or civilian. And let's face it, there's plenty of leaders out there that I come across all the time that never were in the military and yet are very uh, directive and, and authoritarian. I have seen that myself. Uh, in fact, I have commented more than once, and they were that, that a previous company that I had worked for. Uh, didn't want to hire me because I was in the military and, and, and I found a leader in there and I, my comment to somebody else was, and they didn't want to hire me because I was the authoritarian leader. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm curious, when you were talking about the team you took over, when you uh, went into the private sector, did you come up against resistance? Or I got to imagine that some of your employees on your team sat there thinking, you know, oh, my God, here comes this colonel that now I'm going to be reporting into. Did you find that it was more challenging to, to build trust with your employees? No, not at all, to be honest. Um, first of all, I, I don't even know how many people knew I had had military experience when I started that. I know the few that were part of the interview uh, uh-huh. structure did. Uh, those that did, I did find out later, did express their exact concern of bringing on a, you know, a military leader and you know everything we just talked about. Um, but when I uh, got into the role, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the things about the military is, you know, you do move into a, basically a new leadership role every couple of years. And so in doing that, you, you build your, your onboarding process in very particular ways. And one of the best things that I ever practiced and, and, and many of my peers also is when you take on a new role, you try to do nothing for the first 30 days because you want to see how the organization is running before you put your hands in and start tinkering with something that might be working very well. Now, in the case of my first leadership position, I was hired into that role because the team was not working very well. A client was not happy and the the company was at risk of losing the contract because of they weren't performing as a team. So I didn't make it to 30 days before I had to start uh, taking some particular steps to move that, that, that team forward in a way that, uh, fit into the two two phrases that I used for for the two and a half years that I led that team, which is we we have to have an activity that's in alignment with each other so that we're not crossing the streams or tripping over uh, uh, tripping over each other's work or being inefficient, you know. And then that activity has to be integrated together towards the greater good. And so I would start half my meetings talking about alignment and integration to the point where I had the entire team could quote that, uh, you know, as as we were coming on the end of our uh, contract term, you know, and had met our goals three months early. So so clearly, you know, that that all process worked out very well for us. I get asked a lot about how how do you build team unity. So is that part of your approach to building cohesive teams? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I, it starts with the vision. You, know, uh, you, you bring together a team, whether it was the 13 people that, that, that I had in my first team or the, you know, the five managers and, and 70 people that I have working for me now. You know, there's got to be a co- collective future vision out there that everyone understands and marches to uh, so that you can push down the, the expectations and, and, and flow them into established, maybe established processes, maybe new processes, you know, uh, and, and then creating accountability so that it all rolls back up again to meet that future vision that you've described. And then as the, the role of the leader is to, you know, engage and motivate uh, and, and, and support people. And this is where, you know, the real true servant leadership comes in. Once you've established where you're going, your job and the leader is just to support the people that are going to get you there. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in that, you know, sharing a vision is, is important and passing down the expectations, but if you're not going to hold people accountable to them, and oftentimes that's where a lot of leaders fail, it's the accountability piece and holding your people accountable. 
you know, what's the point of, of creating a vision and setting expectations if you're not going to hold people accountable? And it only takes one or two, you know, one or two people in the boat without an oar, uh, you know, just sitting there enjoying the ride to get those others that are rowing even harder to, to slow down a little bit and say if it's good enough for him or her, then, you know, sitting in the boat might be good enough for me. And the next thing you know, that boat's not going anywhere. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about at a, at a higher level, because when, when you're a frontline manager and you're creating a vision and holding people accountable, it's 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 I think easier to hold people accountable because they're one layer below you. Now, my audience, my listeners, I have leaders at all different levels. And I do believe it's more challenging as you get higher in the organization to be able to have that vision and cascade it down and hold people accountable throughout all your reporting structure. So I'm curious, when you were the the vice commander, of the base, and you had, uh, I think you said 11,000 people under your command. How difficult was that to keep that vision and hold people accountable all throughout your organization? You know, easier than you think. And and the reason is, uh, and this is where, you know, it's important to have a vision because everyone needs to know where you're going. But underneath that vision needs to be clear objectives uh, and key metrics. You know, in the commercial world, we call them KPIs, right? Key performance indicators. Uh, but those metrics that and and the milestones associated with that pathway um, at Keesler Air Force Base, we you know ran the uh, 34 or so you know individual training classes through uh, our training group, and that exact question came up: and how do we know how we're doing? Uh, uh, you know, in each of these 34 different pipelines, uh, and so we worked together. And we took a took a page out of the out of the flying training world and brought it into the tech training world, in the in the Air Force and created a stoplight chart. We identified the key performance, you know, indicators that we needed to track across each of the 34 programs, and we would sit in the meetings uh, on a monthly basis and we would we would light them up with red, yellow, and green. Uh, naturally, in a stoplight chart uh, that I think many of us are familiar with, if it's green, you just move on to the next one. If it's red, you want to have a deeper conversation about why it's red and what it takes to get to green. And if it's yellow, you want to dig in a little bit and find out whether that yellow is trending toward green and it's on a good path or whether it's trending toward red and maybe it needs a little more help to trend back toward the green. So we, we developed that across the 34 training programs. took a little while to sell it. Um, but once, you know, once we, we, we ran it, it, it worked very well for us to, to show accountability across all the programs and to understand where the challenges were and to be able to then reallocate resources to support those challenges. And that was done within your direct reports that reported into you? It was across the training, yep, across the training group. Yep. Hmm. Now, is that a, a technique and approach you currently use today with your teams or something similar? You know, it's funny, we... Yeah, um, we're we're going to move in that direction here in 2020. Um, we broadened, uh, you know, our program base a little bit, and uh, when you've only got a couple of programs to oversee, it becomes easy to dig down into each one. But as your responsibility uh, as the leader broadens, you you don't get to spend as much time in the deep dive. So you've got to really get to those. Uh, you know, where do I focus my spotlight? Uh, and I think that, that that's where these stoplight charts come in. And so it is an area that we're going to move into this year. I, I will say this, the important piece about that start stoplight chart is to have a culture of accountability 
and and trust that allows those managers that are yellow and red to to admit that they are yellow and red and get the support of the resources that are needed to get them to green and not have a culture where if you know your stoplight for particular KPI is red you're just going to get yelled at by the boss and you know now you disincentivize people from being honest about where they are and then you just start sweeping things under the rug which we all know how that works out in the long run yeah i can see how some might be intimidated by that and might want to hold back because of that yep right yeah that that the that's the critical importance of the culture of trust you know and 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 integrity you know your integrity integrity that you're going to do the right thing and integrity that in your response to things to bad news is going to be you know in a, in a way that's supportive and not destructive well and what i hear is your guiding principles coming back into play you know the integrity first service before self excellence in all we do and how you spoke about uh, you know, showing that you care about the people. So as a leader in, with that type of initiative, you have to set the, the tone of the culture that you're trying to create that, you know, it's not going to be something punitive, that the whole initiative is there to help everyone move things forward. I think that's a critical piece. Uh, you know, in today's, you know, it, whether it was the military, you know, is, is a highly complex very dynamic environment. Uh, the world I live in now in the you know, energy space is, is a very complex, highly dynamic environment. There are good, you know, each of my managers is good people. They are good people. I've hired them. They are, you know, they are given their best. Uh, if, if one of their stoplights shows up red, it, it, it's not an indication of their leadership. It's, it, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for improvement. And I think that's an important piece to to that stoplight chart uh, structure. Okay, I wanted to highlight one of your assignments when you were part of General Schwarzkopf's aircrew during Desert Storm and Desert Shield, which was the first Gulf War during uh, 1990 or 91. Are there any leadership lessons that you learned from the time you spent with General Schwarzkopf? Oh, thanks, Rob. Yeah, there's a great... A great memory from my uh, nine months spent deployed for Desert Shield and Desert Storm in support of uh, General Schwarzkopf's crew. You know, uh, General Schwarzkopf was a great leader. Uh, he was also a uh, highly volatile leader. Uh, there's a, enough stories out there about his temper as there are about his uh, strengths and, and, and leadership skills. Uh, the the one thing that always stood out with that man, uh, you know, was his commitment to excellence and his demand from everyone that worked for him to deliver that excellence. He had a responsibility for the lives of every soldier, sailor, airman, and Marine that was deployed uh, to, in that combat environment. And he took every one of those seriously. And he wanted to make sure that every leader that worked for him was taking it equally as seriously and bringing their complete and total commitment to to the success of that operation uh many times <laughs> that would get him a little spun up uh and you could always tell when he was in a good mood or a bad mood as he was coming on the airplane on any given day so any uh stories you can share well the best <laughs> the best story i've got out of there is the day that uh we landed uh and the general came up and 
tapped me on the shoulder and said, thanks very much, Captain. I'm, I give you a nine on that landing. Uh, and I said, well, General, thank you very much, but what does it take to get a 10? And he said, well, you'd have to take me back to Tampa so I could go home to my wife. So since we were still in Saudi Arabia on that one, it wasn't going to happen that day. But some. <laughs> well, I, I guess from that perspective, a nine is pretty damn good then. <laughs> I'll take it. All right. We're, we're almost out of time. So just a couple more questions for you. So looking back at your first team that you ever commanded, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Sure. That's great. I, you know, I, it's easy now to speak to these uh, guiding principles that I shared, which is, you know, which really are the Air Force core values of integrity first and service before self and excellence in all you do. Uh, I wish sometimes back then that I had uh, embodied that a little bit better. You know, there's two two stories that always come to mind for that. The, the first one is uh, as a young lieutenant uh, in my first real leadership role at any level, which was as an aircraft commander of a C-141B uh, aircraft and a global mission. I had full responsibility for the airplane, the seven crew to take that uh, aircraft around the world, deliver the mission that was given to us by the, by the command and control elements. Uh, you know, as a new leader, I, I felt it was really important that I had a complete understanding of everything that was going on. But uh, also as the command pilot, you know, I had pretty much had my hands full day to day with the airplane. And so the thing I wish I would have done a little bit better, and, and it's certainly something that I've learned from, and, and I got a lot of help from our uh, enlisted air crew and the, the non-commissioned officers that were in charge of those crew, is that I would trust those folks that were doing their job a little bit more than I probably did the first time around. You know, as a leader, when you spend a lot of time, you, you know, nosing around what everybody else is doing and really getting into their business and thinking, thinking that you're smarter than them, you're only going to do a couple of things, and, and, and one is to turn them off. Uh, and, you know, of what they're trying to do in their own level of excellence. And the second is they're going to lose trust in, in, in your leadership because they don't think you trust them. Uh, that was a great lesson to learn in your first leadership opportunity. And I think it's one that I've always tried to, to carry forward is that you have to trust, the, you know, hire the right people, train them in the right way and trust them in, to do their job. The second piece would be my first flight commander position. A flight, as the flight commander, I had responsibility for all of the Gulfstream pilots at our squadron in Germany. And I worked directly for the squadron commander who would then give me tasks and you know, operational objectives and requirements. Uh, and, you know, and I felt like I was always protecting my crew, my pilots, and, and I tried to do as much of that work myself so that I didn't have to burden them. It turned out to be a bad idea uh, when my squadron commander called me in one day and he said, you have a team of 13 people working for you and you need to start using them to help you to do this work because you're going to kill yourself trying to do this all by yourself. And I'm not going to sit here and watch you do that. So if you don't start delegating some of this responsibility down to others, and I'm just going to find somebody else who will. That was a very good lesson learned. <laughs> and so it helped me to, to really sharpen my delegation skills. Well, I think it's something else to point out too, that from, from your point of view, and I think it's important for my listeners to, to really focus on this. From your point of view, what you said is you, know, you were trying to lessen the burden of the people under you as well. However, from their point of view, though, it could have the opposite effect of what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Right. And so your intent might be having the opposite effect, where I think a lot of managers sometimes struggle to see the other point of view. Uh, even though they might have good intentions, it might have the opposite effect. All too true. And it's really the importance of 
you know, of the opportunity to, to take an academic trainings, you know, and, and, and read, you know, various different books about leadership so that you can learn from others and, and try to limit making those mistakes yourself uh, early on in your career. Because sometimes, sometimes you make too many mistakes as a young manager and then you're labeled for the rest of your management career. You know, luckily in the United States Air Force, it's pretty well understood that young managers are going to make mistakes and there's enough um, support systems in there to to help you grow, like the squadron commander who, you know, gave threatened to fire me if I didn't do my job as a leader. Uh, you know that that the system is is very supportive that way, and and, and everyone that understands military leadership knows that the military is a leadership laboratory. And speaking of of books, last question I have for you: What is your favorite leadership book that you would recommend to our listeners? That's a great question. I have. Uh, in my office here, I have no less than 25 books on leadership from various different types of books and, and various different perspectives as well. My favorite leadership book has got to be uh, Colin Powell's uh, My American Journey. And what I really like about it is not just that here you have the, the, you know, the son of immigrant parents who grew up to go to West Point and they move on to become a four-star general and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and a national security advisor to a president and secretary of state. Um, you know, it's a great story. Uh, but also at the very end of his book, he's got Colin Powell's Rules for Leadership. And uh, it, it, you could go onto YouTube and find those 13 rules anywhere, but they are foundational to everything that I've done. And in fact, Every leadership position I've had for the last 15 years when that book came out, uh, I have that printed and posted in my office, and I share it with everyone that works for me and around me as, as much as I can. And we'll put the link to Colin Powell's book in the show notes. I'm just curious, looking at the 13 rules, which two stand out the most for you? The two that I'll point to uh, is... The first one, which is, it ain't as bad as you think it is. It'll look better in the morning. And what I like about that is maybe it will be better in the morning. Maybe it won't. What it will do for you is it allows you to take that bad news and process it on your own time overnight and not react necessarily in a negative way to the, to the team that brings it to you. Because as soon as, as, soon as you become the, the guy that nobody wants to bring bad news to, you'll be the guy or gal that nobody ever brings bad news to. And we all know that bad news isn't wine. It doesn't get better with age. So you want to be able to take that, process it appropriately, go to bed with that optimistic. It'll look better in the morning and get up. And, and, and maybe it's better, maybe it's not, but at least you've slept through and understand a, a better engagement strategy to take that bad news and turn it into good news. The other side of that it really is, is, is complementary. The last one is Perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. You know, in the military, a force multiplier is 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 a resource that you can use. That when you use it in a particular context, it becomes bigger than it has a bigger effect than the resource itself normally does. It's the same thing as uh, in in the civilian sector as a high performing team that you know comes together and 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 really uh, punches above its weight. But that perpetual optimism from the leadership perspective, it allows people around you. Uh, regardless of the circumstances, the complexity uh, that's going on to see that, you know, the leader is optimistic that we're going to meet our objectives. He has confidence in the in the team that's below him. That allows people to maybe take a little more risk because they know that you're confident that they're going to get the job done. They want to really strive for that level of excellence and it becomes a force multiplier in, in its delivery. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. 
Kerner Valley, it was an honor to have you as a guest today, and I want to thank you for your long, distinguished service and for your willingness to share some of your leadership experience and guiding principles with our listeners. Thank you. Rob, my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, and continue good luck with your podcast. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you're enjoying the podcast, then click the subscribe button, leave a review, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.